Hi, just a note to listeners that we recorded this on Wednesday, and today on the very first day of COP28, an agreement was reached on the Loss and Damage Startup Fund, a key priority for African nations at the summit, which we do discuss at a fair amount of length here in this episode. Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell, and this episode is in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, or FES. Today, we have three guests here to talk about the African positions and priorities at the COP28 World Climate Summit in Dubai. Joining us is my colleague Nazanin Moshiri, who listeners will know is a crisis group senior analyst on climate, environment, and conflict. We're also pleased to have Robert Muthami back on the show. Robert is a climate change policy expert and a member of Kenya's delegation at previous COP summits. And to round out the panel, we have first-time guest Salim Fakir, the executive director of the African Climate Foundation. Thank you all for joining us today. Thanks, Alan. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Robert, we'll start with you. Generally, I'd say, you know, when you read the wider media on this COP, um, expectations are lower, perhaps because the UAE itself is a major fossil fuel producer. But what about the expectations from the African side of things, from the African delegations? Um, how are they looking at this COP and, and, and what's at stake? Africa's core focus at COP28 is to announce action on adaptation and resilience against the, the consequences of climate change. But of course, um, building on the outcome in COP27, operationalization of the loss and damage fund, making the fund operational, including the ado- adoption of the governance instrument. And I think um, this particular COP is important, especially in ironing out how that fund will be operationalized. The other thing is for the African continent is around the climate finance. And as a critical facilitator of climate ambition, African countries are, are looking at developed countries making their financial contributions basically to ad- address the outstanding deficits in the delivery of the promised 100 billion US dollars per year since the year 2020. That still becomes one of the critical issues moving to COP28. Salim, what do you want to add to uh, Robert's list there of the key African negotiating positions at COP? And then how unified in practice is the Africa position among all the different countries? I do think that that the Africa group of negotiators are taking a stronger unified position, uh, particularly on loss and damage, a new finance target, because as you know, we have not uh, met from the Paris uh, Agreement. It was signed in uh, 2015. We've not met the 100 billion target, but the world, and particularly Africa, needs a lot more finances, so we have to relook at the finance target. And then the global goal on adaptation is a, is a really crucial part uh, of the negotiation. On those three things, I think, uh, you know, you'll see a very strong uh, unified African position. The second point is, I think we need to uh, locate the climate discussion, not just in terms of the Paris goals, uh, they are fundamental, but also the requirement for growth and development on the African continent. So we have to integrate climate in in a much more strategic way uh, in the discussions around economic development issues on the continent. Obviously, more resources that we can mobilize both outside of Africa and within Africa for adaptation and resilience is is crucial. And the second part is uh, the need for accelerating, not just on the basis of decarbonization, but accelerating on the basis of improving 
energy access uh, through increased electrification, through adoption of new technologies. For that, we need um, cheaper sources of finance. The cost of uh, financing many of these uh, transitions, whether they are in support of resilience to climate or whether they are in support of new investments, uh, taking advantage of new technologies like renewables, electric vehicles, and many other things that are will be needed on the continent anyway because these are uh, good investments to make, irrespective of the fact that we only produce 4% of the global emissions. Uh, we still need to capture, I think, uh, the benefits of climate investments uh, in the longer term. Thanks. And um, to address another big picture item here, which is the money um, and the financing. And, and Salim, just a, just a follow-up. Like you mentioned, the $100 billion a year commitment, I mean, essentially the money just hasn't been there uh, despite the pledge. Is there any sort of thinking about how that deficit is ever going to be met? Because um, it's one thing to get these commitments out of these cops. It's another thing to actually start to actualize them. So this is, uh, I think this is very important that we actually move away from a narrow climate finance debate to a debate about finance reform and the changes in the global finance architecture and the role of uh, development finance institutions. In fact, the, the African Climate Foundation uh, at the Africa Climate Summit in September put out a white paper just painting the uh, the debates and also recommendations of um, where we need to go with finance reform. So improvement in the global DFIs that are responsible for dealing with um, uh, least developed uh, economies uh, to increase their capitalization and their ability to fund uh, initiatives. The second is ways to to source cheaper sources of finance, uh, trying to push the uh, ability of the private finance to take a little bit more risk, uh, but also to soften the blow by not seeking higher internal rate of returns for the investments on the continent because they, there's a perception of high risk, but rather to figure out ways in which uh, both public and private finance can actually unlock more funding at uh, more cheaper sources. The other is to look at uh, these discussions, for example, from the Rutu government to look at uh, uh, a finance, a global finance tax. This has been around for, for years. And also a shipping tax that then can be mobilized to, to support decarbonization goals and investments in climate uh, issues across the, the world and especially in Africa. Thanks, Salim. Uh, Nazanin, you know, as discussed, one of the big ticket items brokered in the sort of final hours of the last COP was over this loss and damage fund. However, it's it's still not operational. What's happened to that fund and, and, and where do things stand about getting that up and running? Thanks, Alan. Yes, uh, as you mentioned there, um, the loss and damage fund needs to become operational. And that's going to be a key uh, factor uh, at COP28. As you know, uh, there are many countries uh, that have you know, agreed to the loss and damage fund, but I, I still think that, that the political will still isn't there. Um, and there are discussions over how the loss and damage fund will become operationalized. And one of the big sticking points is who is going to host the fund. Um, the World Bank, um, has been put forward as one option by uh, the US and you know, people who are, who are close to the US in, in negotiations. 
Um, but some people from from the developing world are unsure about that because if the World Bank hosts the loss and damage fund, then some countries, for example, Cuba, which is under sanctions, won't be able to access that fund. And also, of course, some people feel that the World Bank would automatically you know, skewer the fund towards uh, what you know the rich and developed countries want rather than what the global south and developing countries want out of the fund. If they can't agree on the operation, does it appear like the money itself would be there? That's another issue as well. Um, who is going to put money into the fund? So far, um, I think the figures are very abysmal, <laughs> that barely anything has been put into into the loss and damage fund. Um, so that is a big issue as well. Who's going to fund it? Um, and so far, indications are, are not good on that as well. As Salim mentioned earlier, the uh, Africa Climate Summit uh, preceded this COP. Uh, Robert, I'm just wondering, um, you know, there was some controversy around that Africa Climate Summit in Nairobi. You know, w- w- what came out of it and, and you know, w- what effect has it uh, had in sort of unifying the, the African group's negotiating position? I think one of the main achievements in the Africa Climate Summit was one to basically look at climate change from a different narrative, not from a victim's perspective. And I think that was the President Ruto's message as uh, basically the champion of the summit. Africa coming in as a solution provider, especially for the challenges that Africa is facing on climate change. And I think um, there were different proposals, especially to approach the climate change discourse. But I think um, the African Climate Summit, of course, um, was a meeting and we have the declaration that, that that basically proposes various interventions on how Africa should basically pursue the climate climate change uh, issues. For it to become an official document, of course, it has to be adopted in an African Union uh, decision. And the next African Union summit um, is next year um, in, in February in, in Addis Ababa. But of course, um, there are issues in that particular declara- declaration that have, have a push and pull between, between different actors, one being the, the carbon markets, um, civil society and other actors have different um, narratives and different perspectives on some of those issues. And I think through dialogue process, that will also come clearly next year. I mean, just after the declaration came out, around 500 civil society organisations uh, did write a rather scathing statement where they criticised uh, the summit for being dominated by what they called global north interests and basically which were being marketed, as they said, as African priorities. Um, And they were concerned that there wasn't enough consultation of civil society, of uh, campaigners. They were also concerned that some consultancy companies were also had had a vested interest um, at the expense of Africa. I mean, my take is, I have to say, that uh, it, it was um, an incredible feat for, for Kenya to hold the summit. And there were a lot of bold statements and, and declarations um, in the final statement that came out. A lot of bold ideas came out in that statement, um, which uh, could be uh, potentially good. But from my perspective, as somebody who's looking at this from a more of a conflict perspective, there wasn't enough of a focus, I would say, on uh, integrating and weaving in uh, conflict and conflict dynamics into uh, these issues from you know, climate financing to energy transition. I really felt that conflict should, be, should have been more 
uh, part of the equation uh, rather than just a side issue. Thanks. And Salim, how, how does the African negotiating position, how, how does it fit within the broader negotiating position of the Global South? And has the Global South's negotiating strategy and mechanisms, has it proven fit for purpose? You know, has it risen to the moment, so to speak? So the Africa bloc is part of the G77 plus China. And this is sort of the, you know, the southern constituency that is represented there, which in itself is uh, also differentiated in in terms of the uh, economic capacity of, of different countries. China is obviously the, the biggest uh, economy. Uh, in that group. Uh, but I think what, what is important is that we also have to look outside of the UNFCC to see uh, how southern interests are starting to coalesce. Uh, so we've got the BRICS, the expansion of the BRICS. Uh, we've got to watch the G21 now because the, the African Union is part of the G20. Uh, and we also have to look at uh, other formations that are emerging I think that the, the different countries, of course, within the, the South have their different interests. But uh, what happens at a lot of these uh, meetings, uh, even that's true for the African Union and, and others, is that usually in order to get consensus, you have to go down to the lowest uh, denominator uh, in order to get even within groups of uh, blocks of countries to, to agree on, on any particular position. And as you know, we are also in a fragmented geoeconomics and uh, geopolitical environment. Uh, There will be questions about if you were to embark on uh, climate transitions, uh, you know, who do you source your finance from and who do you source your technology from, given those fractures. These are interesting times in in relationship to to transition. So uh, there are friction points emerging and that can have two two ways of which in which it can be dealt with. It can either split the southern groups or it can unify them. And I think uh, this is a story that will still evolve as we go along. Thanks, Salim. Just quickly on that, what are the main points of friction? Uh, I think a lot of it is, for, we see that, for example, on a shipping tax, for example, uh, certain countries like Brazil feel that uh, if Kenya pushed a, a, for example, African countries pushed a, a tax on, on, on shipping, for example, uh, that would raise the cost of uh, exports from some of these uh, uh, emerging or developing countries to the rest of the world. In, so I would say that in general, there would be uh, uh, interest in political cooperation. Uh, on another level, there would be divergence of, uh, of interest because of the economic consequences. Uh, one other area is around sort of the, the European Union putting in place a carbon border tax adjustment and if India does that and China does that, uh, in, in, in response to, to, to Europe, uh, that could also create a, a point of friction with other uh, southern countries who may want delays or want to ensure that uh, these types of non-trade measures uh, don't affect the, the economies. For the first time, issues of peace and conflict um, will feature at the COP. H- how exactly are those issues being included and why is it important? There's going to be on uh, the 3rd of December a Relief, Recovery and Peace Day um, and a declaration which the UAE as the hosts of COP are, are leading. Um, it's a non-binding, uh, non-legally binding declaration, but it, but it is a really high level recognition um, that people... You know, vulnerable people living in these fragile and conflict hit areas um, that are really left out and left behind 
when it comes to climate action, that they are going to be the focus, you know, for the first time. Uh, because uh, what, what the declaration is saying is basically that we need to get climate financing to these conflict affected states. I mean, there has been a little bit of criticism, I have to say, from some people I've spoken to who are concerned that this will distract from the official COP negotiations, um, which are run by the United Nations, of course, um, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, um, and also that the UAE hasn't really consulted those affected countries or communities in the process of writing this declaration. But I, my take is I think that it is a, is a good move, it's a positive step. And it, it's a beginning, isn't it, to, to try to make things happen at last try to give more financial support, try to create partnerships, programming, which are sensitive to these conflict risks. Mm. Nazneen, a lot of your work and crisis groups work on this issue, it focuses on, on countries, you know, which are suffering from both climate change on the one hand and conflict in the other. Um, and those communities are, of course, especially vulnerable to these climate shocks. Everyone can imagine the challenges of getting financing, even if you had it, to directly help People in places like South Sudan or, or, or Somalia, places where the states aren't really functioning. What, you know, what, what, what are those countries and what are others thinking about how to tackle this problem, which is that even if you have the financing, there's a question of how to get it to um, actually help the people on the ground? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned uh, South Sudan and Somalia there. These are two countries that do, do not have the accreditation to apply for climate financing from the Green Climate Fund, uh, which is the main fund um, that you know, gives these kinds of grants uh, that countries need, particularly in fragile areas. They don't even have the accreditation to do that. So that's you know a massive barrier and they need to sort of be helped to get over that barrier and then apply. Uh, and it takes so long, sometimes years, and it's so complex as well. Um, and as you said, even if suddenly money becomes available for Somalia in central and southern Somalia, for example, which has been grappling with with a drought that lasted two and a half years. And now with these, uh, what the UN is saying, once a, once in a hundred year floods, uh, which are affecting large swathes of the country, you have uh, a conflict ongoing with uh, Al-Shabaab, the Islamist militant group, uh, which is operating in the country. So how are you going to get uh, projects done in those areas, either controlled by the group or at risk uh, from the group targeting some of those some of those projects. I mean, I think what needs to happen is there needs to be better collaboration between all of these different uh, entities working on these issues and with the humanitarian sector. So the humanitarian sector, they are able to reach some of these areas. They're able to provide aid or get aid, um, whether that's in the form of food or, or water or building, you know, water points or wells or whatever. Um, so I think that we can learn a lot from the way that they operate and the urgency they have when it comes to providing humanitarian aid uh, in areas which seem unreachable, but humanitarian agencies are able to reach. So I think all of these uh, various entities need to be better aligned. Um, and also there needs to be a will from the various donors who are funding uh, these climate financing uh, funds to basically make sure that fragile states 
are able to access the money that there is available um, and maybe fast track money to certain countries at certain times that are experiencing these kinds of weather related disasters. Robert, you've worked quite a lot on this intersection between climate and security as well. Um, I'm wondering if you just want to come in on this and, you know, in, in what it'll take in your estimation to start taking some of these discussions, which have now been happening for years and, you know, starting to ground them into actual practical steps. The, the draft declaration basically says that money is urgently required to build climate resilience for people affected by conflict or disasters. Um, but of course, the major concerns have, have been around uh, the major deficit in climate cl- climate adaptation finance. And that being the issue and, 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 and how this can be also worked more pragmatically is looking at uh, basically the national adaptation plans and trying to um, conflict-proof them. Look at uh, basically conflict issues around all the national adaptation plans or plans that countries have, especially in responding to climate change from an adaptation perspective, and try to cost basically the conflict issues that are related to climate change in those adaptation plans then basically pursue um, where to get financing for that. So I see the national adaptation plans and also the NDCs at the country level as pathways as, uh, which basically uh, climate finance could be assessed into this. But also this builds into what, what Nazanin was saying, that um, I think much attention also is needed for those fragile states, basically to to access uh, financing through the Green, green Climate fund, adaptation fund, and also other financing streams that exist within um, the global climate climate finance mechanism. The other aspect and the other difficult issue is within that particular draft declaration, it calls for action to address loss and damage. Um, These negotiations, which had a very long um, been beset by difficult around the issues around um, loss and damage, um, uh, have not basically addressed the whole financing aspect around that. And I think we also need to be very careful um, that the, the conflict dynamics or climate security dynamics do not get into the whole uh, confusion around the loss and damage, the push and pull that we've held for so many years, not reaching an agreement because I think it's very urgent we address climate security issues that, that, that exist in the, in the fr- fragile states. Can I ask both of you, Robert and, and, and Nazanin, what, what is the risk of funds that are essentially already going to these countries for humanitarian reasons? Because many of the countries, you know, in the Horn and elsewhere on the continent have major recipients already of aid money. What, what, what is the concern that that existing money might essentially be rehatted as climate money um, and that essentially wouldn't see the new funds coming in for adaptation that many would want to see? One of the issues is uh, the humanitarian needs in those particular countries are too much. The financing that is being provided is not enough. Countries also are digging into their domestic uh, resources that are supposed to finance education, uh, infrastructure at the country level, uh, basically to respond to issues of uh, loss and damage. But of course, we have challenges even um, uh, in those particular countries with respect to fiduciary standards, issues of corruption in, in those countries are also key domestic issues that uh, basically amper um, where these particular funds are supposed to go. But of course, the structural ad- adjustments on, and, and, and governance issues at the country level also are a big challenge in those particular fragile states. Yeah, so uh, I was recently at an event with um humanitarian agencies talking about the the outlook for the Horn region in particular. 
And almost all of them were saying that they foresee an increase uh, in armed conflict um, in Somalia, Ethiopia, Sudan, South Sudan, and potential for regional spillover in the region um, because of the escalation of existing conflicts and, and more conflicts to come. And their budgets at the same time are being slashed because of priorities um, in, in Ukraine, um, what we're seeing in, in Gaza and Israel, um, also the general economic situation um, and donors basically uh, slashing uh, their budgets. But even, even with the slashing of budgets, they still feel that it's really important uh, to try to do more uh, to intersect what they're doing in terms of short-term measures um, with the resilience building um, that that is really needed. Um, but the problem is, as Robert pointed out, is that where is that money going to come from? And I don't think anyone in the humanitarian uh, world wants money slashed from their operations um, to go towards building resilience and uh, these kinds of climate projects that will will help in the long term, the 5, 10, 15 years. Um, so that money is going to have to come from somewhere. It, it, and I don't think it's going to come from those those budgets. So we're almost out of time. I'm going to ask you all uh, to quickly sort of sum up uh, what you hope to see out of this COP, you know, what would make this COP, in your estimation, a realistic success um, as you're watching in the in the couple weeks ahead. So, uh, Salim, I'll start with you. The only concern I have is that um, when you start adding more things to the agenda item, you know, there's the suite of stuff that uh, negotiators have to contend with and actually develop agendas around can dilute uh, the importance of what... Uh, in my view, uh, is important that we need to get out of COP at the UAE. And this is really the primary focus on uh, the developed countries taking more responsibility, actually accelerating transitions within uh, their own countries and uh, perhaps giving, which is the argument uh, countries from the South are making, allowing for more development space in these countries and to then be able to catch up uh, later, and we've done that, for example, in areas of industrial development. We saw advanced economies move very fast, and then uh, developing countries caught up. So I think that's very important that uh, we get these real commitments. The importance of uh, common but differentiated responsibility. We cannot uh, buy into the argument uh, that is being pushed by some uh, developed economies that in this particular era. Uh, if you have um, issues around loss and damage, adaptation and uh, resilience, uh, and you are the victim of uh, uh, carbon bombs that uh, have been exploded because of uh, the utilization of fossil fuels elsewhere in the world, uh, that you must also now take responsibility for you know, the shocks that you receive as a result of climate vulnerability. I think that would not be acceptable for developing countries and certainly uh, many of the emerging economies. And these tensions are going to to play out. So for me, I think those optics are important in order for us to be able to get agreements on many of the other issues we've just discussed on this podcast. Thank you, Salim. Robert, quickly, what would make this COP28 uh, a success uh, in your book? Uh, thank you very much, Alan. And I think uh, this being a global stock tech COP, um, basically from my side, the outcome from the global stock tech should be comprehensive and balanced. 
um, and also reflect on the principles and provision of the convention and its Paris Agreement. And of course, this outcome around the global stock tech, I think, um, should identify opportunities and challenges for enhancing action and also support international cooperation with key political message, message that basically must aim uh, towards achieving the long-term goals of the Paris Agreement in the context of sustainable development, poverty eradication, and also looking at issues of economic diversification. But um, this also needs to take into account the needs uh, of developing countries in terms of sustainable development and just transition. Uh, on adaptation, I think... Um, at COP28, uh, there is need to adopt a robust and also in, integral uh, global goal and adaptation framework that also takes into account uh, equity and also uh, common but differentiated responsibilities and the national circumstances that the countries, uh, different countries have. Um, this particular framework on adaptation should be inclusive. I think if COP28 has to be successful, then it should also be recognized developing countries' challenges, including the flexibility and also the need to mobilize the required support for developing countries. Um, on the last item, and for COP28 to be successful because climate finance has been uh, push and pull for many years, the provision of the new and additional adequate and predictable means of implementation, uh, in particular climate finance uh, from developed to developing countries, is the main pillar of climate change regime. Um, and I think more than a matter of solidarity needs to be uh, met there, the fulfillment, especially of the finance commitment of developing developed countries is um, is basically um, a critical for a collective success of COP28 so that at least we un unbundle um, the challenges that are there um, in addressing the needs, be it from an, ad an adaptation perspective, mitigation perspective, addressing issues of loss and damage. But of course, I agree um, I agree, especially um, with Salim, on many agenda items. I think we're also getting so much lost in many agenda items without some sort of convergence, especially on, on implementation. If COP28 will work around uh, basically moving forward on implementation rather than um, issues that basically obstruct um, uh, the focus on that particular front, that will be a big success. Thank you very much. Thanks, Robert. That makes a lot of sense. Nazneen, what are you watching for? So for me, I think it's really important that the focus is on adaptation, particularly for vulnerable communities where both conflict and climate can have these knock-on effects on, on political and social tensions. And often adaptation is overlooked in COP talks, but I'm, I'm hopeful that it will be mainstreamed on the agenda this time round. And if you just look at the adaptation gaps in Africa, it's a whopping $41 billion a year uh, of, of a gap that's needed uh, to meet uh, the adaptation needs of Africa by 2030. Also, I think uh, another priority has to be the loss and damage fund. That could be a potential lifeline for African countries experiencing these kinds of weather-related disasters that we're seeing increasingly. But we still have to work out, uh, according to negotiators that I've spoken to, still have to work out who's going to host the fund and also who's going to fund it as well, who's going to put money into it. And, there, and it may well have to be not just public money, but innovative financing as well, as, as Salim mentioned there. Also, another thing that I'm a bit concerned about is that you know, we have many wars 
and economic distractions going on. But I really do feel that the climate diplomacy has to be firewalled from everything that's going on in the world right now. But there is a risk, and there's always a risk, of course, at these kinds of uh, events, that richer nations prioritise their own political and economic interests over the greater good. I'm really hoping that doesn't happen, and it would be disastrous for, for many uh, really vulnerable African countries that are already experiencing the unavoidable and irreversible impacts of climate change. Salim, Robert, Nazanin, thank you for uh, for taking an hour out of your time to record this with us. Um, and I really appreciated that. And our listeners will as well. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting us. Thanks. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for listening. The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. This episode was produced in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, or FES. You can find out more about Crisis Group's work at crisisgroup.org. I'm Alan Boswell. Our producers are Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. <laughs>